today's program. We are live uh, here in beautiful, sunny, warm uh, Kingsport, Tennessee. And the sun is just shining today. It was kind of gray this morning, but it's uh, just gloriously beautiful now. Uh, today's program is probably going to be a little short because I'm really tired and I, um, I'll go ahead and show activity. Um, I'm tired because I ate something that uh, turned my stomach inside out um, while I was trying to sleep. And so I've been up since about one and had me some Alka-Seltzer and uh, that did the trick. But then I, I was wide awake. I never, never really did go back to sleep. But today I wanted to uh, just read a little bit and make some comments on uh, a book that I just wrote called Am I Right With God? And I wanted to uh, go through the 10 chapters of this book and some programs and just make some comments along the way here. And uh, so I'm just going to get right to it. Um, Most of the chapters are expositions of texts of scripture. Uh, But I wanted to write a book on um, that you could hand to someone who's not a Christian and uh, with hopefully with confidence that it would explain the gospel clearly uh, so that they would understand it and uh, could hopefully maybe come to know the Lord Jesus. And uh, this is actually on Amazon.com. It's called Am I Right With God? And uh, the opening chapter is called Fatal Ignorance of God's Justifying Righteousness, Romans 10, 1 through 4. Satan's greatest masterpieces are not the false religions of men. Satan's greatest and most effective schemes are the false religions which closely mimic the truth. And I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, That is what the devil does best, is not so much frontal assault, uh, although he does do that. He He does frontal attack. But usually he does a flanking maneuver or will try to mimic the truth, but put a fatal poison somewhere into the mix. Uh, Christian counterfeits are Satan's most deadliest uh, creations. In the wild, poison fruits that look like the ordinary good fruits eaten by animals are often their demise. And uh, I've seen documentaries where you know a camel or something will... Uh, they'll eat fruit off of a, a bush that um, looks just like what they normally eat, and it'll it'll either kill them or come close to killing them because it looks like the, the plant, but it's not. It's full of poison. Every religion and worldview that stands opposed to the truth has something in common. All of man's religions are, in essence, the same. Uh, they are the same in that, in the final analysis, men save themselves or achieve some sort of happy afterlife by what they do. When it comes to Christian counterfeits, so these are the the groups that mimic Christianity uh, as closely as they can. They will always give lip service to the necessity of grace. I mean, no no one that's trying to imitate Christianity would ever deny that we're saved by grace. I mean, even Pelagius in the ancient Augustinian Pelagian controversy, uh, Pelagius said we're saved by grace alone. Now, he taught that we're ultimately saved by works, but everybody's going to pay lip service to grace, okay? Everybody knows you're not going to get anywhere uh, with Christians if you just deny grace altogether. But all of man's religions um, are are the same, but the Christian counterfeits, they always give lip service to the necessity of grace, the necessity of faith in Christ, the necessity of the cross work of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ, the resurrection of the Son of God, etc., One could not be saved without these things in all Christian counterfeits. But in these false religious schemes, it's always the righteousness or works or decisions 
or faithfulness or obedience of men that is the decisive point in the salvation equation. Yes, God's grace and Jesus Christ, they always do their thing to make salvation possible, but in the end, it's the works, the obedience, the faithfulness, and personal holiness of the sinner that determines whether heaven or hell will be that one's eternal resting place. So to make the issue before us really, really clear, at the end of the day, when it all boils down to the heart and soul of the religious ideas before us, and whether or not man's eternal destiny is blessed or cursed, whether man will go to heaven or hell, here is where the war is between the truth and all that opposes it. Self-righteousness versus the righteousness of God. There's self-righteousness, and then there's the righteousness of God. That's what it comes down to in the end. Upon what legal grounds are sinners saved from God's righteous judgment and brought into heaven to be with him in blessed fellowship and communion forever? Does the obedience of the sinner, the sinner's subjective transformation, the sinner's pursuit of holiness, or the sinner's faithfulness to Christ play any role whatsoever in getting them into heaven? Will it be our goodness righteousness, faithfulness, obedience, and works, or will it be the righteousness of God? Could it in some way be both? How do we as sinners come to be right with God? What does scripture mean when it says we must believe the gospel to be justified before God? What is belief? One way translators render the Greek word for belief, pistis, that Greek word pistis, is with the English word faith. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Does faith in any way includes the, the sinner's works. Does faith include the sinner's faithfulness, the sinner's obedience, the sinner's transformation, the sinner's growth and personal holiness? To answer these questions right here at the outset, here is what faith in Jesus Christ is. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. In other words, to believe in Jesus for justification before God, for salvation from God's wrath, means to have personal trust in his work and in his personal righteousness alone to save you. It also means you have no confidence in the flesh, as Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 3, which means no confidence in anything that we ever do. Faith in Jesus Christ is a self-conscious rejection of reliance upon anything done in obedience to God by the sinner. Faith looks away from self entirely to Jesus Christ alone for the whole of salvation, to believe in Jesus means you do not believe in yourself or trust in your own works, piety, holiness of heart, faithfulness, obedience, or anything else whatsoever in yourself. To believe in Jesus means that your entire confidence for entering heaven after death is located in the shed blood and death of Christ for the whole of your forgiveness, and in Jesus Christ's personal, preceptive obedience to the law of God, legally imputed or charged or credited to your account before God for your justification and salvation from God's wrath. I hope this is clear enough. Faith in Jesus Christ is not obedience. Faith in Jesus Christ does not include the sinner's obedience in any way at all. Obedience to God is a fruit of conversion and the new birth. Faith in Jesus Christ is not and does not include the sinner's faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is not works. Faith in Jesus Christ is not covenant faithfulness. Faith in Jesus Christ is not and does not include any subjective change in the believing sinner of any kind whatsoever. Faith in Jesus Christ is personal trust and confidence that it is Jesus Christ's personal righteousness and cross work alone 
that will achieve heaven for that sinner after death. For entering heaven, it will be the cross death of Jesus and Jesus' personal obedience to the Ten Commandments that God will examine to let you into heaven because only Jesus' personal obedience to the Ten Commandments has the merit necessary to meet the requirement of the holiness of God, whose commandments they are. Your works do not enter into this judgment for salvation in any way whatsoever. There is no vindication of the reality of one's faith at the last day by an inspection of fruit in the sinner. This false teaching is one of a thousand ways the all-sufficiency of Christ's work has been denied by false teachers throughout the entirety of redemptive history. There is no final salvation by fruit. There is no last-day fruit inspection which vindicates the reality of our faith in Jesus. And I would ask the question, why would God need to inspect fruit at the last day to see if our faith was real when he already is omniscient and knows everything? The office of Savior is executed by Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Jesus is simply resting upon the perfection of his execution of that sacred office of Savior. Faith in or belief in Jesus Christ, which excludes entirely the sinner's works, obedience, faithfulness, piety, intentions, and anything done in them or by them, is the only way that salvation can be said to be by grace. It is also the only way salvation can be sure and guaranteed. This is the argument of the Apostle Paul earlier in Romans chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Here the Holy Spirit says, For if those who are of the law are heirs... What does he mean by that? Those who are of the law are heirs. He means those who are working, who are doing things, believing that that's going to save them. If those who are of the law, trusting in their law keeping, if they're heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Romans 4.16 is the concluding argument of everything in Romans 4 leading up to it. Justification is by belief alone, completely apart from the sinner's works, so that justification and salvation would be by grace. If the sinner entered heaven with the help of anything they did, in addition to faith in Christ alone, or anything alongside of faith in Christ alone, then salvation and justification would no longer be by grace. Failure to grasp this essential truth is fatal to the soul. The sinner relies upon Christ's righteousness to get them into heaven and to save them from God's wrath against their sins and for their legal verdict of justified at the last judgment at the last day because only the the only righteousness that has the merit necessary to meet the requirements of the holiness of God is that righteousness that was achieved and performed by Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone. That's where the word sola, alone, comes into play in that phrase sola fide. Sola fide is Latin for faith alone. Justification is sola fide, faith alone, by faith alone. Justification sola fide, by faith alone, is shorthand for justification by the righteousness of Christ alone. And that's the gospel. Anything different from this is a false gospel, which is no gospel at all. This is the key to understanding Paul's clear and emphatic argument here in Romans 10, 1-4. Those who do not know what I have just spelled out to you here are ignorant of God's righteousness. 
and thus will always be, in some way, seeking to establish their own righteousness, it says in Romans 10, verse 3. So critical is this point that Paul says people who are ignorant of everything explained thus far in this chapter are not saved. Paul labored in prayer for such people's salvation. He knew without a knowledge of this glorious truth, sinners would die rightly and justly condemned in their sins and go to hell at the final judgment. Israel did not have a knowledge of this truth. And this is why Paul's most earnest prayer for Israel was that they would be saved. There's a very important concept communicated through the word of God in general, but in particular in this passage of scripture before us in Romans 10, 1 through 4. And that concept is this, zeal that is not based on truth is worth nothing in God's sight when it comes to being right with him. God does not care if people are sincerely devoted to some sort of religion. All that matters is, what are you relying on to get you past the judgment of God into heaven when you die? Do you know of God's righteousness, which is the very righteousness achieved by Jesus's preceptive law-keeping? Do you know of that righteousness? Do you trust only in that righteousness? Are you trusting in Jesus's righteousness and not in anything you have done to save you? If you die, trusting to any degree whatsoever in your own righteousness instead of Jesus Christ's, you are going to hell, and rightly so. Jesus entered into the covenant of works, which the first Adam failed to keep for us. This is what the expression born under the law means in Galatians 4, 4. Paul says this in that passage, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we would receive the adoption as sons. Jesus was born under the law means that Jesus entered into the covenant of works in our behalf. Someone has to do this for us and in our stead, because we, sadly, are conceived in sin already. Psalm 51, verse 5. We start out sinful in the womb the moment we are conceived. Therefore, salvation to any degree whatsoever by our own works, obedience, or law-keeping is off the table as a possibility. Jesus has to do it all in our place instead. He did this to redeem those who were under the law. This means that the law which condemns everyone in Adam's fallen race was kept perfectly by Jesus, and that Jesus also bore the curse of his people's disobedience to that same law when he died on the cross. The law inflicts a curse upon all who disobey it. And everyone disobeys God's laws. All who die were lying in any way at all upon their own works, their own obedience, their own law-keeping, are under God's curse for their disobedience. Everyone sins, Everyone falls short of God's perfect standard. Paul explains this so beautifully in Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Now, think about that. As many as are of the works of the law. That's anyone trusting in their own law keeping and anything that they do to get them into heaven. If you're doing that, if you think that you're good enough, if you're trusting in yourself or your own law keeping, you are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree 
that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The as many as are of the works of the law there, those individuals, that refers to any person who trusts in their own obedience, their own righteousness, or their own works in any way to get them into heaven. It also refers to anyone who believes that personal obedience is included in what faith is. In other words, when scripture says the sinner is justified by faith, some actually teach that works are included in faith. It is certainly odd that some do this, but False teachers, the evil, the erring, the incorrigible, the wicked, and the arrogant, always find a way to insert themselves decisively into the salvation equation, all the while giving lip service to the work of Jesus. This is the fatal error the entire letter of Galatians addresses. If faith includes the sinner's obedience, think about how absurd all these statements in Scripture become. Romans 3.20 Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. Okay, do you hear what that's saying? No flesh shall be justified before God by keeping the law, by their works. So if you say that faith in Christ is works, um, haven't you really just contradicted that? Of course. Romans 3.28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Romans 4.5, but to him who does not work, but believes. How could you possibly say that, that believing is works, when the two are contrasted as starkly as they could be? To the one not working, but in opposition to that, is believing on the Lord Jesus, believing on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, Romans 4.14, for if those who are of the law, those who are working for it, are heirs of eternal life and are going to go to heaven, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Okay, so we're justified by faith, not by works. By faith, not by obedience. By faith, not by works of law. Not by works. Not by deeds of righteousness. We're justified by faith, not any of that. So do you see how odd it would be if you said, well, faith means works. That's like saying, so we're justified by works apart from works. It doesn't make any sense. Dr. Robert Raymond, a great uh, Christian theologian in his wonderful book, A New Systematic Theology of the Christian Faith, said about all these verses I've just read to you, quote, With a gloriously monotonous regularity, Paul pits faith off over against all law-keeping as its diametrical opposite as to referent, whereas the latter relies on the human effort of the law-keeper looking to himself to render satisfaction before God, the former repudiates and looks entirely away from all human effort to the cross work of Jesus Christ, who alone by his sacrificial death rendered satisfaction before God for men. End quote. All of us stand on the precipice of eternity. Set before us are a hundred bridges with hell beneath them. Heaven is on the other side of all one hundred bridges, and all these bridges have signs over them that say, Heaven, straight ahead. 99 of those 100 bridges are made of paper mache. All of them look exactly the same on the outside. They look strong and firm, but only one of them is safe. 
Only one of them will lead you to heaven. Any gospel of faith in Jesus Christ plus faithfulness, plus covenant obedience, plus personal sanctification and holiness, plus fruit, plus works, or plus anything is one of those false bridges. Any gospel where faith is defined as faithfulness, covenant obedience, personal sanctification, personal holiness, fruit, works, or anything else is likewise a false paper mache bridge. Every bit as fatal to your soul as any of the faith plus works bridges are. The only bridge that can take you safely to heaven is trusting and relying only upon Jesus Christ's personal righteousness, his cross work and resurrection to do it. To trust in anything in addition to him or alongside of him is to step onto a false bridge and to go to hell. God's word is so very clear on this matter. Paul wrote in Galatians 5.2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. If you think it's Jesus plus anything, if you think that faith in Christ is relying upon Christ and obeying Christ, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And I would say by extension, I testify to anyone who thinks that faith in Jesus Christ is obedience. You're a debtor to keep the whole law, and Christ will be of no benefit to you. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. If these professing Christians were trusting in Jesus Christ plus circumcision to save them, then Christ would profit them nothing. They would be stepping onto a papier-mâché bridge. Add one thing, one work, one seemingly noble and Christ-honoring thing to what Jesus did, and you destroy the gospel altogether and your own soul as well. Add one thing, one work, one iota of personal faithfulness or loyalty to your definition of faith in Jesus Christ, and Christ will profit you nothing. When a person says they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that belief excludes trust and reliance upon anything other than Jesus Christ's person and work. Faith does not do anything except receive and rest upon Jesus alone. To believe in Jesus is to stop believing in anything else to save you. I emphasize this so much because our Lord's apostles do, and because the whole Bible does. I want you to go to heaven, not hell. Jesus either does all the saving, or he will do none of it at all, and you will have to save yourself by your own righteousness alone. That's what Galatians 5.3 means by he is a debtor to keep the whole law. To think that your faith includes your obedience is to say clearly that you think what Jesus Christ accomplished is not sufficient to save you. Hence, Christ will profit you nothing, Galatians 5.2, and you are a debtor to keep the whole law. Coming to Jesus means coming on his terms. His terms are that you abandon all hope and confidence in yourself and what you do. And instead, you rely entirely and only upon Jesus Christ's personal righteousness and cross work and resurrection to save you. That's the truth. If you don't get it or refuse to believe it, then you are ignorant of God's righteousness and are seeking to establish your own righteousness. You are in your sins and you are lost. One of the saddest things we see in the world is the publication of books, conferences, and events promoting false gospels, false doctrines of salvation, false doctrines of what faith in Christ means and false religions. 
The zealots of those fatal ideas often travel land and sea, speaking and wearing themselves out, proselytizing people to their false religions and false gospels. Incredible amounts of time, energy, and money are poured into the dissemination of false religious ideas. Jesus himself directly addressed zeal without knowledge and denounced it in very direct terms. Matthew twenty-three fifteen: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Traveling land and sea in order to make converts would require planning, money, courage, self-sacrifice, analysis of an area to see how to reach the people in it, and lots of hard work. Jesus does not commend them for their zeal. The primary point of this book you are now reading is that truth is more important than zeal and sincerity. The most important question facing anyone in life is, how can I, a sinner, be right with God? Is it possible to live and die in the comfort of knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we as persons are accepted as if we were truly righteous in the sight of God? Yes, it is. And that question of how I, as a sinner, can be right with God is the single most important question any human being can contemplate. Every false answer to it leads to eternal damnation, and therefore zeal for every false answer to those questions is worthless in the sight of God. Not only is zeal for falsehood worthless, it incurs God's anger and wrath. Purveyors of fatal, Christ-dishonoring errors about the gospel of Jesus Christ are met in scripture with ferocious and terrifying divine condemnations. Consider the following three passages, Jude, verses 12 and 13. These are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Second Peter 2.17 These are wells without water. Clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. In Galatians 1.8 But even if we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now I want to stop there. I just want to make um, one, one last comment on Galatians 1, 8 and 9 there. Paul is saying here that what is authoritative is the gospel of a free justification by belief alone, not by works or obedience or anything like that. That's the message that has the highest authority. And he says, if I myself come back and tell you something different, let me be accursed. He says, if an angel from heaven comes to you and preaches something else, something other than sola fide, let them be anathema, let them be damned and accursed. I want you to think about that for a moment. If an angel from the very presence of God came into the room, and told you you're supposed to believe something, wouldn't you probably be somewhat compelled to believe it, seeing it's a supernatural thing? (laughs) An angel dispatched from God, supposedly? A supernatural manifestation? And they tell you, yeah, 
you're justified by faith alone, and faith is covenant faithfulness. Paul says, I don't care if an angel tells you that. Let them be damned. Let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. If I tell you something other than the original message of sola fide, just justification by faith alone, let me be accursed. If an angel can prove with all the signs and wonders and credentials, but they don't teach the true gospel, may they be damned too. You see how serious this is? You see how we can know if someone's right and if someone's wrong about the gospel. We can know. And if we have to sit back and, well, maybe he means this, maybe he means that. He could be meaning this, he could be meaning that. That's definitely a very, very, very bad sign. So I'm going to pick up there uh, next time, unless I've got something else that's really um, pressing that I want to talk about. Whoops. And um, just want to say thanks to everybody for um, your support and encouragement. We've got just over 1,100 subscribers now. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. There's a ton of 21 people. There was nobody. I, I, I didn't have the screen this screen up before I started reading <laughs> Wow, there's 21 people. That is a record. That's incredible. Wow, I feel so encouraged by that. Thank you, everybody. Okay, hello, everyone. There's Paul Garvey. Bill Wayne, good afternoon, sir. There's Jonas. There's one of my chillins. That's probably Lily. Hey, Lily. And and Gianna and Ruthie and Lizzie and Hannah and Lily and Malachi. Okay, uh, let's see. And there's Miss Falling and there's uh, Susan Castleman. Hello there. And there's Rob Gibbs. The only gospel preaching, hymn singing, God-fearing church near me is an Arminian fundamental KJV only Bible-believing Baptist church that believes in the rapture. <sighs> well, uh, it's Arminian. Like it's, it's like explicitly Arminian. I'm actually starting a series, a new series on the doctrines of grace because I've been reading um, a book, uh, the Kindle version of the book. Oh, here it is. Um, Susan Castleman will recognize this. Uh, this guy. Daniel Hyde's book, Grace Worth Fighting For. This is a gem of a book. It really is. And also, this one, Saving the Reformation by uh, Robert Godfrey. The 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort. And I've been learning a lot. It, Hyde's book is quite a bit longer than Godfrey's, but the historical stuff in there is so good. But I'm preaching on unconditional election from Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Sunday morning, so I've been writing that sermon and I'm uh, going to finish it off hopefully tomorrow, Bar- barring any any uh, huge pressing things that take up my whole day or something. Um, so yeah, well, I used to be a member there until the pastor and I had a falling out over the doctrine of the rapture. It wasn't until later I became reformed. Should I still go there? <sighs> Man, people ask me these hard church questions. I don't know. You probably need to be ready to to um, to commute to drive a while to find a church that's, that's going to be committed to the, to the doctrines of grace, to the, to the biblical gospel. I mean, I don't know. It, it, it just depends. Okay. Uh, yeah. Wow. Rob time to move. <laughs> yeah. The, K, the King James version is fine. I mean, I love the King James version. I've read from the new King James for years and years. I preach out of the new American standard, but I always read the new King James uh, in my daily Bible reading. I listen to it on audible. That's where I do all my memorization and everything is in the new King James. Um, but yeah, KJV only is, uh, is, is, uh, problematic, I think. Okay. Uh, there's KW. I, I'm, I've, that guy's been on here before. Um, 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 
they dream of being their their kids live living their dream of being in Nirvana or something. Okay, scattered sheep. Uh, uh, this this is a new person. Um, dear Pastor, I want to thank you very much. You have been a blessing to me. I'm new to your channel. Well, you are very you are very welcome. Appreciate your kindness. Um, yeah, you you want to keep the Lord's Day, and you don't want to like do the electronic church thing. You do need to be. You need to find a, a local church. You need to find a local church to be part of. And as hard as that is, it's warts and all, it's what Jesus founded. You know, the, the thought of not going somewhere to church, you know, and I, and I remember it took, it took Amy and I over a year of visiting. Of course, just picture this, how naive I was back when I was about 23 or 24. I thought <laughs> when I first became reformed that there was just like reformed churches and like they're all the same. And I, all the churches I was visiting were PC USA churches, and I kept sitting in, in service after service in these Presbyterian churches, thinking I thought these folks believed these great confessions and stuff. And then I found out about the liberal, the fundamentalist modernist controversy, and how there's there's actually not that many Presbyterian churches that believe the Westminster Standards. So that was a that was heartbreaking to me. But I kept going. I remember there was one church in particular there in Akron. I can't remember what it was called, but it was fairly big and it had a real pretty building and uh, it was very nice. It sat in there and went through the service and there was a corporate confession of sin. And that was the first time in my life I had ever confessed as a sin. Lord, we, we confess our hurriedness. It was, it was around Christmas season. We confess that we are too hurried. We confess our busyness. I was sitting there going, is that actually a sin? Is it sin to be a little hurried? Is it a sin to be, um, to be busy? We, we, we confessed our busyness and our hurriedness. And I, looking back on it, I'm surprised it didn't add, you know, we confess, forgive us for not being liberal enough or something. How's it going, pastor? It's going okay. I'm tired today. Really tired. I've been up since one. I don't know what I ate. I ate something that just turned my stomach in knots. And I finally just got up and I had a, a glass of um, Alka-Seltzer. And that, that really did the trick, but I was just wide awake then. It was just pointless to try to go back to bed. <sighs> so I've been up since uh, since one. Okay. Um, how's it going? That's not an excuse for keep for not keeping the Sabbath. Yeah, you got you to gotta find somewhere to go, man. And that might mean a long commuter like Susan said. You might need to move. Okay, um, I'm not using it as an excuse. Okay, yeah. No, don't go to a Catholic church. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. I'm glad you put LOL by that. You don't want to go to the blasphemous um, sacrifice of the mass for the for the uh, people that are present and for the dead in purgatory. That's not, you don't ever want to do that. Hello, fellow saints. There's Soli Deo Gloria. I'm not sure I've seen that person before. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. What am I reading from? I'm reading from my book. Um, am I right with God? It's out there on Amazon. I've got the original on my computer here. I actually found a couple little typos that I just fixed. I'll, re I'll upload that and up update it. Okay. Um, 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 Dave Page. I don't know who that is. Jacob Williams. Sorry, So sorry I'm late. Have you been on here before? I don't know if I've seen you before. Okay. Um, Kendra Ann Elliott. Hello. Um, you sound like my Mormon upbringing <laughs> the electronic church yeah you don't you know the uh the statistics from what um ligonier ministries and i've heard this from other places too 
after COVID, a fifth of church members are, are not going back to church now. A fifth of people that used to go to church don't go to church anymore. They just sit at home. And if they, if they might be watching on a live stream or something, but 20% of all church members in America, the statistics are showing, are not going back to church. That is absolutely appalling. That's really sad to me. Because you've got to be in church. You've got to be face-to-face with, with other sheep and with brothers and sisters. We all need that. We, we desperately need it. Okay, um, let's see who else is there. I'm Reformed 1689, so Reformed Baptist, attending an Arminian Pentecostal church. No other available in my country. Wow, we get along fine. Yeah, yeah, it, it, dep- it depends. It would probably just really depend on if the minister there really, really tries to be faithful to Scripture and will try to exposit the Word of God and really is under the authority of Scripture. And, you know, there are probably men who are far better than me, far greater than, than I'll ever be. Uh, in other denominations, and uh, they they work hard on their sermons, and they shepherd their flocks with great care. And I know that there are thousands of, of uh, faithful pastors out there like that who are in all kinds of different churches. You know, they could be in Pentecostal churches, they could be in um, Baptist churches, and you know, of of all the different flavors of that. And you know, you just don't know. You don't know. I I encourage people. You got to give folks a chance, and, and you need to be able, be willing to sit down and meet with elders and uh, and talk to them and things like that. Okay, you're under a tree with your Bible and a guitar. That's good. There are no sound churches near me in Louisiana. It's ninety percent Roman Catholic. Yeah, there's a lot of I've I've heard that there's a lot of Catholicism in in Louisiana. Yikes. Okay. Oh oh oh. oh. Soli Deo Gloria is Daisy Daisy De La Pada. Oh yes, from Southern California. Okay, I remember you. I remember you now. Um. Well, thanks for being on here. And there's lukewarm no more, whose real first name is Bill, right? I think that that's who you are. A lot of these screen names, I just don't, I just don't know who people are here. Jacob Williams, I've emailed you and had some chains before you recommended to me the complete husband. Oh yes, oh yes, I remember that. The complete husband by Lou Priolo. That is one of the best books on being a godly um, husband that I've ever read, and uh, I've read through that. Actually, we got like thirty copies of it here at church, and I um, gave a copy to every guy in the church that's married and single. And uh, we did a bunch of bonfires at my house, and I just came up with some lessons based on what Priolo says, and uh, had some really good um, conversations about that. But that's just such a good book. It's such a convicting book about being a godly husband and uh, all that stuff. Lou Priolo is really good. He wrote another book about um, called The Heart of Anger, dealing with the causes of childhood anger and, and things like that. Um, but Lou Priolo is a really, really good author. Okay, I've been reading through the catechisms. There's so much in them. It's amazing. Yeah, the Westminster Larger Catechism is really, I think, uh, the fullest statement of Christian doctrine probably ever written. Um, And it's just wonderful. And um, questions uh, 70 through like 78 is on justification, sanctification, and the difference. What is the difference between justification and sanctification? That's one of the best little sections of that catechism you could ever read. And if people understood how biblical and sound the teaching is there, it would really make a huge difference. And we, we wouldn't have so many problems like we're having today with false understandings of faith. Like, for example, you know, um, I don't want to get into dropping names as usual, but uh, l- listen to this. Okay, what what is... All right, it's uh, how does faith... How does faith justify 
a sinner in the sight of God. WCS. Faith justify. A sinner in the sight of God. Yeah, it's question 73. Listen to this. How, how does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Great question. Because remember, what is faith? Faith is not just assenting to the truth of the gospel, but receiving and resting on Christ alone. Okay, so that's the primary thing that faith is. Faith, faith believes the Bible's true, but when it comes to our justification, faith simply looks to the finished work of Christ alone to be saved. But the, the framers of the confession, they wanted to make sure that they were as clear as they could be. So question 73 asks, how? How does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Answer, faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God, not because of those other graces which do always accompany it like sanctification, or of good works that are the fruits of it, nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification. That's a direct shot at the Arminians, because that's what the Arminians were saying. The Arminians were saying, well, we can't be perfect anymore, so God has lowered the standard just to faith. So faith is our contribution, and God accepts our faith as if it's righteousness or something like that. That's not it at all. They finish, but only as it is an instrument by which he receives and applies Christ and his righteousness. So you need to understand there's nothing virtuous or meritorious about faith itself. Faith simply lays hold of Christ. The only merit is Christ's. The only thing that actually gets us past the judgment of God is the finished work of Christ. And that is what makes salvation guaranteed. That's what makes it certain. That's why that passage, I remember years ago, kind of doing my own little Romans revolution where I, I was at first been introduced to reform theology and really digging into my Bible. And I thought, you know, Luther and Calvin both encouraged Christians to memorize the whole book of Romans. I thought, wow, I don't know if I've got the whole thing memorized, but I sat at lunch every day when I was a computer programmer and just day after day after day, would just read Romans over and over and over and over and over again and learned so much from it. In that section there in Romans chapter 4, after Paul spells out, here's how Abraham was justified. He was justified by trusting in God's promise by faith alone. <clears throat> David was justified after the giving of the law by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. And Paul says, therefore, it is by faith so that it can be by grace. If justification was by something in addition to faith in Christ, it wouldn't be grace anymore. Think about that. Romans 4.16, therefore, it is by faith that it would be in accordance with grace so that the promise would be sure. I remember that finally sinking in at like after reading Romans like the 80th time and, and going, yeah, you, you trust in the finished work of Christ and it's his work that's going to get you into heaven. Because if it was anything other than that, if it was anything in addition to faith, wouldn't be grace then. Faith in Christ alone, faith alone and Christ alone is the only way that we can say that we're saved by grace. And that, when that finally registered, I remember thinking that is so liberating. That's so liberating. So whether I'm having a good week or a bad week, whether I feel like I'm walking strongly with the Lord and I'm walking on cloud nine and, and I'm defeating my besetting sins or I'm struggling or I'm going through a spiritual downtime or a season of depression or sadness or, or something. It's Christ alone that saves me. How does faith justify a sinner? 
Faith justifies the sinner in the sight of God, not because of those other graces which do always accompany it, nor of good works that are the fruits of it, not as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification, but only as faith is an instrument by which he receives and applies Christ in his righteousness. And then there's that great uh, quotation from B.B. Warfield uh, where he says, it is not even strictly, strictly speaking faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves us through faith. Faith lays hold of the one who saves us. There's nothing virtuous in our faith. The only virtue is Christ. The saving power is in what faith rests on. Christ. His cross. His righteousness. And Luther, Luther, was, Luther understood that so perfectly. And he used that great illustration. The person who has 100 gold coins in a steel safe and 100 gold coins in a wet paper sack they both still have 100 gold coins. So whether your faith in Christ is weak or strong, it's not the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith. It's what your faith rests on. It's what your confidence rests in that saves you. Christ, his righteousness. It's glorious stuff, isn't it? It never, never, never gets old uh, to just rest on the Lord Jesus and to trust in him and to know that he's got our future in his hand and that he loves us and that even when we suffer, and even when we, we go through things that really break our heart and are, are difficult, even that is to cause us to long for heaven more. It's to cause us to make a cleaner break with idolatry. It's to cause us to, to long for heaven and to, to immerse ourselves in God's word. You know, I, think, I think it's Psalm 119, verse 82. My eyes fail from searching your word saying, when will you comfort me? It's to cause us to do like Jacob did. I will not let you go unless you bless me. You wrestle with God and in prayer, we do that when we suffer. And that's really, that's really why we, God decrees for us to go through those things that are really, really, really hard. Although I have said to God many times, I would much prefer to be sanctified uh, laying in a hammock in Hawaii, sipping uh, iced tea with a cool ocean breeze blowing off the, uh, the breeze, uh, knowing that all 10 of my kids are, are saved and right with God and are walking with, strong with Christ. And my wife feels loved and my church feels uh, fed from God's word. And it would, that'd be wonderful if I could be sanctified by, like that. Um, but that's typically not how it, um, how it works. Okay. Let's see. What else? Wow. A lot of, a lot of folks chatting over here. Okay. Enjoying your book. Cool. Good. I'm glad you're reading it. Leave a little review on, on Amazon. If you, if you finish it and, and liked it, Okay, the wife and I are praying for you and your kids. Thank you. My oldest is doing great serving the Lord. So much gratitude. That's good. Yeah, mo- most of my kiddos are doing are doing well um, as far as their walk with, with the Lord Jesus. Um, most of them are, um, but not all. Greg Monson has some good stuff, uh, but full on, full on theonomist. Yep. Um, Jordy, do you think there will be a third temple? No, I don't. I don't. And I also think that if a third temple was built, it would be irrelevant to Bible prophecy. I really, I really don't think it'd be of any relevance at all. Okay, um, Susan, how does the Eastern Orthodox get around all the justification language? Um, they basically ignore it uh, because their theology kind of more or less fossilized in the ninth century or so, the eighth century, ninth century, after the the seventh ecumenical council, seven eighty six to seven eighty seven A.D. is when the the second Nicene Council met and they they codified all that nonsense about the uh, the worship of images and icons. Their fossil kind of or their fossil their theology kinds of kind of fossilizes after that. Um, so they they don't really get um, they really don't get uh, 
uh, they don't have the debates about grace that we had in the West. And so because of that, they really, they really don't even have the categories in their theology. Um, they just say, hey, the first seven ecumenical councils, that's our theology. You know, if you want to understand what we believe, that's what you need to read. The first seven ecumenical councils up to the late 8th century. So because they didn't have an Augustinian-Pelagian controversy, they, didn't have, they, didn't, they, they weren't forced to be precise, which is why when you read what they say, they're just Pelagian. They're semi-Pelagian and Pelagian. It's all synergistic. You know, God does his part, man does his part. Um, and they just don't really talk about justification. They don't talk about any of that because uh, they don't believe in sola scriptura. So the reason they get around all that is because they just don't believe in sola scriptura. Okay, what sold you on pedo-baptism? Uh, covenant theology did. Uh, because Abraham believed the gospel. Galatians 3.8, Israel had the gospel preached to them. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. Um, and Abraham was justified by faith alone before the law was given. Abraham was justified by faith alone. Or David was justified by faith alone after the law was given. We are justified by faith alone. Because circumcision and baptism are signs and seals of exactly the same thing. Namely, regeneration and justification. And so Abraham, we're told in Romans 4, verse 11... Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith. So Abraham believed and then was circumcised as a sign that he was justified before God. And that's what circumcision is. It's a sign of personal justification. And I remember thinking, how could that possibly be given to a baby then? But it was for a couple thousand years because God commanded it. And people have said, well, that was just a Jewish thing. I remember thinking, I, I tried that, ar that argument for a while. That was just a Jewish thing. Um, circumcision is not about salvation or anything like that. It was only for Jewish people. And then uh, learning a little bit more about Old Testament history, uh, it was not just an exclusively Jewish thing because circumcision was given to non-Jews from the day it started. Eliezer of Damascus was not a Jew. Actually, it's kind of anachronistic even to use the word Jew. He wasn't a Hebrew. He wasn't a physical descendant of Abraham. Um, the, the word Jew really refers to the, the, the southern kingdom, the, the, uh, the tribe of Judah. That's why they're called Jews after the northern kingdom is destroyed. But, okay, Eliezer of Damascus and the members of Abraham's household, they were not his physical offspring. Okay, and there was always a provision in the Old Testament for non-Hebrews to become part of the church. And listen to this, Exodus twelve forty eight. What This is at the institution of Passover. Uh, right before they leave um, Egypt, Egyptian bondage, Israel is about to leave. Exodus twelve forty eight. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. So when a stranger, when a, a man who's not part of the people of Israel wants to join the church, wants to become part of the people of God, what had to happen? His whole household had to be circumcised. So he'd be circumcised upon his profession of faith, and his whole household got the sign of personal justification too. What do you see in the New Testament over and over again? Individuals believe, and a household is baptized. So I would ask you know, our Reformed Baptist here who's on here, what does that sound like to you? Does it sound like in the New Covenant, now it's just individual salvation. There's nothing about households, the, the corporate solidarity of the family. That's been terminated now. Clearly, that's not the case. Circumcision and baptism are signs of exactly the same spiritual reality. And I remember really, really, really wanting circumcision to be something else. But you look at everywhere it's used in the Old Testament, it's talking about circumcision of the heart. 
Circumcision was a sign of regeneration. It's not a foreshadowing of regeneration. It's a sign of regeneration. It's a sign of justification, just like baptism is. What is Passover a sign of? Of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Christ, the Passover lamb. What is Jesus called when he gets here? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is the uh, analog to uh, Passover? The Lord's Supper. Okay, the Lord's Supper is instituted during the Feast of Passover, when Christ, the final Passover lamb, will be sacrificed. What is the analog to uh, circumcision? Baptism. Baptism is called the circumcision of Christ in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Can you recommend a good book on covenant theology? Yes. The section of Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology uh, will answer all your questions on covenant theology. Uh, the section of Robert Raymond's A New Systematic Theology of the Christian Faith. His stuff on covenant theology is outstanding. Uh, Christ of the Covenants um, by O. Palmer Robertson is, is a good one. God of Promise by Michael Horton is a good book on covenant theology. Um, but I always tell people, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to work through a giant book. You want to understand covenant theology? Just read chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession and get... Archibald Alexander Hodges' commentary on the Westminster Confession. Get A.A. A. Hodges' commentary on the Westminster Confession and just read his comments on chapter 7. It's real straightforward and simple. That, and you, if you do that, read the chapter in A.A. A. Hodges' commentary on the Westminster Confession on chapter 7 of the Confession and you will understand covenant theology. Okay, it's not, it's not very complicated. It, it really isn't. Okie dokie. Um... Wow, a lot of people chatting over here. Okay. Um, 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 um. I'm going to change my name to Strict Baptist. Um, 1646. <laughs> okay. Um, what slow do Okay, so that was the answer to that question. Should Reformed Christians only marry within the tradition? What are your thoughts on marrying other denominations? Um, that's a good question. Well, you gotta, you got to uh, take people by the hand and, and walk them through everything. Um, we, we've been able to help a number of people become more biblical, of course, for, for my part. To become Reformed simply means to become a biblical Christian. Okay, what, what, People ask, what are the distinctives of Reformed theology? I'm like, you mean the distinctives of Christianity? <laughs> the distinctives of biblical Christianity? Um, I, got, I gave as a wedding gift to a couple I married this past weekend. Um, the R.C. Sproul collection, that that's green six-volume thing that Ligonier Ministries just uh, published. It's his best books, and it's got some great stuff in it. So I'm hoping that he will read all that stuff. Okay, um, the fact that people <clears throat> debate the interpretation of a book of fairy tales never ceases to amaze me. Huh? Okay, so this is like a an atheist just being mean. It's not a book of fairy tales. It's not a book of fairy tales. It's the very word of God. Okay. Oh, that's a real sweet guy. Okay, let's uh let's say uh goodbye to you. Bye-bye. Ashley Latimer, thank you for your clear teaching of uh, your brother in England. Thank you for answering. You're welcome. I've actually preached a number of sermons on that. It took me a while to to get there cuz I I was I was never a reformed baptist, but I was raised in in baptist circles and it, it took a while. And I I did listen to all the debates, you know, that MacArthur Sproul, all the debates that James White's done, I listened to those, you know, the Shishko debate, the debate that he and Jeff Volker did with Robert Strimple and Gary Johnson long ago, listen to those debates over and over and over again. The debates between Strimple and uh, Fred Malone, I've got the Baptism of Disciples alone over there and have read that and um, etc. Okay, uh, I finally solved my problem being able to type into the chat 
I can't do it while the phone is linked to the TV. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's a good thing to know. Alrighty, wow, we're at the 55-minute mark, and I've got to go visit somebody. Um, okay, good, good, uh, good comments over there today, folks. I appreciate y'all, and uh, uh, love you all. Very thankful for all of you. Thanks for your emails, just your kindness and encouragement to me, and uh, hopefully this has been helpful to some of you, and uh, we'll see you hopefully, hopefully sometime before next Thursday. I'm, I try to do one more program, but a lot of times lately I've been real busy. So anyway, love you all. Uh, thanks for watching or for listening. Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can visit us on the web at bridwellheightschurch.com where all the sermons and podcasts are put into our sermon audio feed, which is accessible in iTunes as well as the podcast app. You are welcome to join us any Sunday morning for Sunday school for all ages at 10 a.m. and then worship for everyone at 11 a.m. If you ever have any questions about the Christian faith or the Bible, you can email me at pastor at bridwellheightschurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.